Welcome to the Public Morality. Recently, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed Senate Bill 202, a sweeping number of voter reform designated to make the state's election more secure. Critics offer this is legislation that's designed to make voting more onerous, especially for those on the margin. Some offer it is the most blatant form of voter suppression since the Jim Crow era. SB 202 is noted for its prohibition of providing people who stand in voting lines food or water. But what does the legislation actually say beyond that? Does it make voting more secure? And are these changes constitutional? We begin this conversation with Stephen Fowler. Fowler is a political reporter for Georgia Public Broadcasting. Stephen Fowler, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I I recall a number of uh, Georgia election officials uh, stating, uh, probably most notable the Secretary of State, that the the 2020 election was the most secure in the state's history. So from your vantage point, what has prompted, what's the rationale for for the changes that we see in, in Senate Bill 202? Well, Backing it up to January, backing it up to really the beginning of 2020, the coronavirus pandemic wreaked havoc on Georgia, rolling out a brand new voting system, $107 million uh, touchscreen with paper ballot components and everything. The June primary that was you know delayed twice beforehand uh, went kind of terribly in some of the big metro Atlanta counties. And so it kind of planted the seeds there for things to be questioned. But November went really well. The only problem with the election was uh, just under 50% of people didn't like the result. And of that 50%, many people didn't believe that it was uh, above board. And so there were questions and doubts about Georgia voting for a Democratic president and not voting for Donald Trump. And that uh, was paired with Georgia's new voting system and a record number of people voting by mail and a record number of people voting, period to kind of uh, sow the seeds of doubt and to question the legitimacy of the election and Georgia's new voting system. Now, how would you define what has been determined, what's called the the Election Integrity Act of 2021, in terms of its objectives? So the stated objective at the top uh, says that there were a lot of problems in 2020, and this is to restore confidence in the election. But the reality is, is that you put a little asterisk there and say Republican confidence in the election. You had a lot of Republican voters that didn't trust absentee by mail ballots. They didn't trust the big turnout in these Democratic-leaning metro counties. And they didn't trust that somehow, you know, this long Republican state would vote for a Democrat for president. And so it's 98 pages of rules and regulations that touch just about every part of how we vote in Georgia that is under this umbrella of restoring voter confidence and securing the ballot. In fact, I would like to go just uh, through some of those changes with you and have, and have you explain to our listeners what exactly is the bill. We hear, we hear a lot about one of one or two things, but there's some other stuff that I, I you know, my words, I find rather concerning. So let's just start with the ch- what are the changes to absentee voting? Well, if you want to vote by mail in Georgia, you still can do it without an excuse. Uh, that has stayed a thing. You know, they didn't eliminate no excuse absentee voting. 
request ballot is going to look different. Uh, before, you had to put your name, your, your information, and then sign the application and sign the ballot. And Solar would take that and compare it against your driver's license signature and other signatures they have to make sure it's you. But this time, what you have to do is you have to put your driver's license number or your state ID number. And if you don't have either one of those, some sort of photocopy of an acceptable voter ID, both request the ballot and return the ballot. And that's the biggest change as far as how you get the ballot. Um, there's also some shortening of the window when you can request the ballot. It's now 11 weeks before to 11 days before because there were problems with people requesting too close to the election and it not getting there, their ballots coming in late. And uh, the other big change is how you can return the ballot. You can always use the post office and put it in the mail. You can always go take it to your county elections office. But uh, now in 2020, there were drop boxes that were put in as an emergency rule because of the public health pandemic. And drop boxes are now part of law. Every county has to have one but instead of being open 24 hours and put really on any piece of government property, they're inside early voting sites, only open during in-person early voting hours, and there's a cap on how many of them that you can have. You mean a cap of, on, on the number of drop boxes you can have? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Fulton County, which is the largest county, which is where Atlanta is, had about 35 or 36 for the November general election. Because of the new law, the maximum they can have is eight. For the whole county. Now, here's an area that, that, that was really a concern to me, and we're going to have um, a gentleman on uh, from a uh, constitutional law professor that I think raises constitutional issues, at least in my mind. What are the changes uh, to local election offices and, and, and the, and the, elect, and the elect, election boards as well? You can probably combine those responses. Yeah, so the state election board is a five-person board that mainly does rulemaking things. Like, they're the ones that uh, allow drop boxes under an emergency rule. They also hold hearings for violations of election law. So, you know, if you illegally campaign for somebody too close to a poll, you go before the state election board. If you're a county official who forgot to count 10,000 ballots and found them later, you go before the state election board. And so there's a house appointee, a Senate appointee, a Democratic Party appointee, and a Republican appointee. But now, instead of the chair being the Secretary of State, the legislature gets to pick who is the head of the state election board. And right now, Republicans control both chambers. But uh, our legislative session just ended Wednesday night, and they didn't pick somebody. So now the governor gets to pick, and our governor is a Republican. So that changes the makeup of this elections board and potentially how it operates. But how that's important is there's a new takeover provision in the law that allows that state election board to investigate and potentially suspend temporarily these local county elections board, you know, made up of three to five people. And in Georgia law, the county elections board has been the power to do things like set polling places and hear challenges to voter registration and uh, certify the election results. So there is some concern that I think is a little overblown, but there is some concern that this could be used to target Democratic counties and kick out their election board and install somebody who's going to overturn the vote and, you know, not allow hundreds of thousands of Democratic votes in these big metro counties to come through. But the reality of the law is that 
it's kind of a longer, drawn out, kind of boring, mundane hearing process where there's a performance review, then you got to meet about the review, then you got to have a hearing about the review, then you can appeal the review. And if you've messed up a bunch, then eventually they could have somebody temporarily replaced. But the problem with that is it's all hypothetical because they put it in a law, but there's still no exact rules on how the state can take over these county elections officials. So would it be fair to suggest that this is a solution uh, in search of a, fro- a problem that doesn't exist in that there was no evidence of voter fraud in 2020? Well, many of the things in the bill are solutions in search of a problems, but in this particular case, there is definitely some merit because while the 2020 election was the smoothest in the state's history, there were still some hiccups that local officials were responsible for. In Northwest Georgia, there was a Republican leaning county that discovered they forgot to count about 2,500 votes the first time that was just sitting there. They forgot to scan. That director is now fired. Same with suburban Atlanta, where somebody else was fired after they didn't count several thousand votes. And so there are potential problems that, you know, boards don't do things the right way and they end up, you know, giving voters the wrong ballots and doing harmful things. But there is no grand sense of fraud permeating every part of Georgia's election that necessarily merits this kind of hostile takeover provision. Now, now, now for all of the, the, the controversy uh, surrounding SB 202 uh, and the potential impact it might have on those t- that traditionally vote Democratic, uh, might this legislation also have an could have at least an adverse uh, impact on those who vote Republican as well? Has, has that been is there any discussion about that? Yeah. So, you know, Georgia has 159 counties. That's second only to Texas. And there are a lot of rural counties that, you know, have 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 voters that are basically the size of some Atlanta neighborhoods. And so typically we think about things that might harm these larger metro counties where there's more people in more lines. But some of the language and some of the provisions could end up making it harder for rural voters that typically tend to vote Republican. And so, you know, there are a lot of things in this bill that are definitely going to make it harder for people to vote, because typically before this most recent election, most people that voted by mail were older white Republicans and, you know, making it harder for them to vote by requiring more ID and other things that makes it a little more difficult for some of the Republicans' key voters that they need in this competitive state. Hmm. You know, one of the ironies, uh, at least it seems to me, from the outside looking, uh, you know, looking in, uh, is that every member of the Republican-led legislature that, that voted for SB 202 were elected in, in 2020. Now, to your knowledge... Was there anyone who voted for this legislation that was concerned about the integrity of their particular election? No, (laughs) that's the thing. Um, The capital E election has concerns, but their own elections, that's not something that they directly uh, contested. And so it it just adds to a little bit of questions and concern about uh, whether people are really concerned about the election. Because, yeah, you didn't have anyone refuse to take office and protest or say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be here. 
No, that that that's actually rather that that's actually rather ironic. It's it's um, I'm concerned about your election, but 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 mine was okay, which is sort of like when you look at when you look at uh, polls about how people feel about Congress. I hate Congress, but my person, he or she's okay. So it's, it's sort of along those lines, right? <laughs> yeah, and so here, I mean, here's a good anecdote. You know, Georgia had to hand count all five million presidential votes in November as part of a new audit process. And so they found that there was the same result that Joe Biden won and he was going to be the next president um, and that he won Georgia's votes. In the January Senate runoffs, there was a county up in Northwest Georgia that did its own audit of the Senate runoffs. It didn't have to, it didn't need to. It's like 75% Republican. And there was a woman there I talked to who believed that Trump won the election and it was stolen from him, but she absolutely knew for a fact that there was nothing wrong with her county's votes. And you know her county did things right, but the other ones she wasn't so sure about. But the thing about that is that in this hand count where they were going through things again, she saw her friends and her neighbors were the ones counting her ballot. So she trusted them and she believed them, but she couldn't say the same for any other county, Republican or Democrat. And so that that's an interesting uh, aside to this, you know, I believe, you know, my stuff's OK, but everyone else's. I don't know about that. Well, you're 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 on the ground and uh, I'm, I'm asking you to put on your Notre Dame hat momentarily. Um, hot, given the fact that so much has been made uh, about this legislation, um, it doesn't seem to me that people are just going to just sit back and just lie low. There are going to be court challenges, and, and if this is, is upheld, uh, people are going to make the, the necessary uh, uh, responses to, to the legislation. How do you think this plays out in, what, 2022? Well, I think even before this bill was signed uh, in January, when lawmakers started proposing changes, like getting rid of no excuse absentee voting and maybe getting rid of automatic voter registration and other extreme things that didn't make it. I think uh, the net effect is it's going to anger and excite a lot more Democrats to get to the polls than it is going to bring Republicans back into the fold because Georgia has a long and sordid history of racist voting laws uh, all the way back to Reconstruction when the first 33 black lawmakers elected to the assembly were kicked out and a quarter of them were later beaten, jailed or killed just for being black. And so, you know, people in Georgia are hip to voting changes, probably not being on the up and up. And so these laws are being seen and challenged as just the latest in a long, long history of Jim Crow style legislation. And when it comes down to it, if you think about 2022 and who you want to be in charge of the state, there's a lot more people that are going to be motivated to come out in opposition to this law in opposition to these changes and to be supportive of it. So I think what the Republicans have done unintentionally is ended up kind of squirreling away more of their power and giving Democrats even more of an advantage coming into things. Hmm. Stephen Fowler, Georgia Public Broadcasting, uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the Public Morality. Much appreciated. And thank you for your insight, sir. Stay tuned as I speak with Ohio State Constitutional Law Professor Edward Foley. That's coming up on the Public Morality.
Welcome back. We continue this conversation about the state of Georgia's recent voting law with Professor Edward Foley. Professor Foley holds the Herbosol Chair in Constitutional Law at The Ohio State University, where he also directs his election law program. Professor Ned Foley, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be with you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Article 1 establishes that elections are the responsibility of the states, uh, in the case of the the recently passed voting law in Georgia, what... is there a constitutional challenge here? Is there, is there any, uh, any constitutional uh, considerations that concern you? Yes. Um, and in fact, three lawsuits have been filed already um, raising constitutional issues. Um, you know, whether they win or lose, we can discuss and it's a little complicated, but there's certainly issues to be discussed. Um, I think there are issues both under the Constitution and under the Voting Rights Act. Um, there's some overlap in the in the jurisprudence uh, applicable, but they are distinct. Uh, if we focus on the Constitution first, um, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, has been understood, you know, for a long time now to protect an equal right to vote. And so, um, insofar as the new Georgia law interferes with the equal right to vote, that raises a constitutional issue. And that claim can be made without regard to issues of race discrimination. In other words, you simply say, I'm a citizen, I'm entitled to vote, I'm not treated right or fairly in terms of my right to vote, and and the the inquiry goes that way. But the Voting Rights Act separately, as I think many people know, uh, was adopted in 1965 to make sure there wasn't any race discrimination with respect to voting. Uh, and that the promise of the 15th Amendment, which is separate from the 14th Amendment, gets enforced. So I think there's that, that's why I think it's worth separating two different issues uh, worth pursuing here. You know, following that sort of line of thinking, um, the, the recently passed H.R. Uh, 1 in the House of Representatives, should that become law? Would it find itself uh, in tension with the Georgia state law, SB 202, as is currently constructed? Yes. And to answer that question, I should also go back to your reference to Article 1 in the Constitution, because that's still a different part of the Constitution than both the 14th and the 15th Amendments, which I mentioned. And there's a lot of different points that we're talking about that need to be considered. So to try to untangle it, Article 1 gives, as you say, Article one applies to elections for Congress. So US Senate, US House of Representatives. Of course, there are also separate state elections for governor or secretary of state, so forth. Article one doesn't control those state offices like governor, only US Senate, US representative. And that, and that provision, which was adopted way back in 1787 at the beginning of the constitution says that in the first instance, the state legislature can write the rules, even though we're talking about congressional elections, but the Congress does have the power to override whatever the state does for congressional elections because we're talking about Congress. And, and H.R. 1 has been um, considered, I mean, it's, a, it's passed the House, it hasn't passed the Senate yet, but it's um, the, the authority for that federal law, that new potentially new federal law, is that Article 1, which gives Congress the power, which means it would only apply to congressional elections. So 
So how does it compare to the new Georgia law that was just adopted? The new Georgia law is meant to cover all elections in the state of Georgia. Governor, state house, secretary of state, and Congress. So the the degree to which HR1 would supersede the new Georgia law, that would only technically only apply to the congressional election. But the point about the 14th and the 15th Amendment, as well as the Voting Rights Act, because that was a because that's the federal constitution's authority in general, the, the fundamental equal right to vote, that applies to all elections, not just to Congress. So that's why it's a little bit tricky. There's sort of two different spheres of law here. And depending on which one we're talking about, its scope is somewhat different. Following that line of thinking, does it does it matter that not just um, what was recently passed in Georgia, but there's a, a number of states that have proposed changes in voting law? And my words, and, and I guess the evidence bears this out, that they're rooted in the fallacious claims of voter fraud. Does that factor in, in these changes at all? Yes. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the we're seeing this unprecedented number of bills pending around the country, Arizona, Iowa, Georgia. And I do think they are a response to what happened in this past election where you know President Trump falsely claimed that it was stolen when in fact it was not stolen. You know, I, I'm not sure that all of the one the bills that have been proposed are going to end up passing. I mean, obviously something passed in Georgia and something did pass in Iowa. And I think something's likely to pass in Arizona, although not everything that was initially proposed. Um, So, you know, we have to kind of see how this plays out. But insofar as the motivation for these laws is an is an incorrect factual premise that may negate the ability of the states to defend these new laws, because the, the, the federal courts will ask the government, what's your justification for doing what you're doing? And if they say, well, President Trump says the election was stolen, that's not going to be in a very effective defense because the courts know that that's an inaccurate claim. Um, now, they probably will try to make the argument that it isn't just what President Trump said. They'll probably try to claim that they're um, trying to increase the public confidence in the voting process, whatever the reason why the public isn't confident. You know, and that will get more serious consideration among the judges who have to evaluate it. But the strength of that claim will be analyzed given the knowledge in the background that part of the reason why the public lacks confidence or a portion of the public lacks confidence is that they've been fed misinformation by their own president. So under the constitutional principles that we were talking about earlier, it's the job of the court to weigh two competing considerations. On the one hand, you look at the right to vote, and if, you, if there's a new state law that interferes with the right to vote, the courts are supposed to weigh the magnitude and the severity of that interference. So the, the, the more of a burden it imposes on the right to vote, the harder it is for the government to justify. And then the other side of that equation is how strong is the government's uh, argument for why it's doing what it's doing. So if you have a really severe interference with the right to vote, 
uh, and a very weak justification the government's going to lose. If you have only a minimal interference with the right to vote and the government has a really strong reason for that minimal interference, then the government's going to win. And then there are a lot of middle ground cases kind of in the gray area. And this this may be uh, getting in the weeds a little bit, but my reading of uh, Senate Bill 202 in Georgia, that allows the legislature to, to ups- usurp uh, election authority over those elected by the people to oversee the elections. That's not a that's not a federal matter per se. But if sovereignty ultimately rests with the people, how is this aspect? How can this aspect of the law pass muster? Yeah, that's a very, very important point. Um, and in fact, I think it's the most important point about the Georgia law. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of different features of it. Before directing your point specifically, you know the, the 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 part of the law that I think will be most vulnerable in federal court, as I've looked at it so far, is this provision that doesn't allow food and water while online, because that seems to me such a strong interference with the right to vote. It's really a, a, a tremendous burden if you're standing online and you really need food and water to, to be deprived of that is you know, is cruelty and, 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 you know, gratuitous suffering. And it seems like the government's justification for that interference is extraordinarily weak in my judgment. So, you know, that, so, so that aspect of the law would be analyzed that way. But the reason why I think the point that you make is even more important is probably the, from a system perspective, looking at the totality of the electoral process as opposed to just a single voter, the, the, the biggest danger to democracy from the new law could be the miscounting of the vote based on the manipulation for partisan purposes by you know, players in the game, so to speak. Who and, and so for the legislature to come in and take over the process, that is very worrisome. But it also raises a tricky question of how you would litigate that in court, because it's not really interfering with casting the ballot. It's not interfering with the individual voters' right to vote. It, the, the harm there is more system-wide, as I was suggested. And um, you know, so far, I haven't seen, you know, it's still early in the litigation, very early, like day one or day two, practically. But But we'll have to look and see whether some of the lawyering is creative to 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 point to what you're um focusing on and yet tie it with federal law that that's a little hard to see at the moment now, now you, you sort of touched on this but i want to further on i want to further it. how much does the history impact this conversation for for all of america's great virtues uh there remain there remain there was a need for the 14th amendment to to provide due process and equal protection the 15th amendment the 19th amendment the voting rights act so how much of this bears um on america's historical past well a lot i mean i spend a lot of time with my students in the election law class talking about that history and um you know, talking about the adoption of the 15th Amendment and then the abandonment of it after Reconstruction ended and the really, you know, terrible period that followed after that. And um, which, you know, sadly, most of my students don't fully know just how horrific American history was. You know, I happen to be reading this book now called Wilmington's Lie. You may know about it, about the Wilmington, North Carolina 
in 1898. It's the, just the a fusion movement. Um, yes. And then the, there was this um, violent overthrow. I mean, of the city government by the white supremacists and the Klan to take power away. But, you know, I mean, if, you know, in my, my high school history teacher didn't teach me that. And, you know, many of my students, their high school teachers don't, don't teach that. So unfortunately, a lot of, you know, I think to be well-educated an attorney, if you're studying election law, you need to know the, the history of the denial of voting rights and under, to understand the, the background for why the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was so important. And so, you know, I mean, in other words, the 15th Amendment existed, but it was a nullity in practice until you had the Voting Rights Act. So you can't really understand fully the nature of voting rights in America without the relationship of the 15th Amendment to its abandonment, unfortunately, and then to finally getting the Voting Rights Act. And the thing that we're worried about now, at least I'm worried about, is the degree of backsliding. Um, you know, I don't want to be overly alarmist about this because I don't, you know, I don't think we're going back all the way to Wilmington 1898. I certainly hope not, but I do think we're in a period of retrenchment. In other words, if you think of America between 1965 and say Shelby County 2013, which was a Supreme Court decision that I'm, I know you know, that, that interpreted you know, the Constitution to um, nullify part of the Voting Rights Act, you, know, the, you could say that we were, we were committed robustly to protecting voting rights you know, finally from 1965 forward. And, and we're going through, again, a period of backsliding or, or retrenchment and and I think the Georgia law is evidence of that. Um, I think, you know, the, and I don't, I think we're, we're living through history in a sense that we don't know what the complete effect of the insurrection on January 6th will be and what politics will look like over the next two, four, 10 years. And, and HR1, as you mentioned, this bill in Congress, you know, would stop the rollback I, I, you know, I, I have my eye on another bill in Congress, which is called the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights uh, um, uh, Advancement Act, designed to um, undo the effect of the Shelby County decision and reinvigorate the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And as as important as HR one is, I think the the John Lewis bill is equally important, may, maybe potentially even more so, um, for reasons we could discuss. So. You know, there, again, there's a lot on the table. Um, but you asked you your specific question was for, in terms of how judges look at litigation. What's the role of this history? I think there's two points to be made about that. You know, one one of the most important features of Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, which was the part that was nullified by Shelby County, was that it the very concept of that provision was to stop the covered states from backsliding. It was a, the technical term in the law is non-retrogression. And that's a fancy way of no, <laughs> don't take away something you that the people already have. And the insight there is that it's even worse to take away rights that people are supposed to have than in a way than if they don't have it in the first place. Section two of the Voting Rights Act is different. It's like everybody's supposed to be treated equally no matter what. But Section 5 says, if you've got in place a law that gives people rights, you can't change that law without justification if you're taking something away. And 
And the consequence of that part of the Voting Rights Act being nullified by Shelby County means that when Georgia passes this new law, as it just did, or, or Iowa, well, Iowa is a different case because it was not a covered jurisdiction, but the concept is the same. It's like in both Iowa and Georgia, and now maybe in Arizona, they are undoing the rights that were implemented last year. And I think that's what's causing people so much angst is like, wait a second, November 2020 was a success story in the midst of a pandemic. We were very worried that we were going to have a problem with the voting process because of the pandemic. Were the lines going to be horrible? You know, in Georgia, in June of the pandemic, there were horrific long lines in the primary because we hadn't learned how to vote in the middle of the primary. And this was also true in Wisconsin. But by November, we learned what to do. And it wasn't perfect, but it was amazingly successful. And yet Trump was unhappy because he lost, but that's not a justification to change the rules. So what's going on right now is this rollback, this, this taking away. And so the real question I think for the judges is do they have a legal tool to, to undo the taking away something that people had in November? And that's a little tricky, again, given the Shelby County decision, because the most obvious tool would have been Section 5, but it's not available at the moment. Well, well, well I, I'm going to ask you to talk about uh, the Voting Rights Act, because you, you've mentioned it several times, and specifically in, the, the, uh, in relation to the Shelby County versus Holder decision, uh, because I, I think it is safe to say, based on the history, <laughs> um, that we would not be having this conversation if section five was still in place well i think yes i think that's half i mean yes and no yes in the sense that certainly georgia would it was a covered jurisdiction and so georgia could not be doing what it's doing um and texas is a covered jurisdiction and texas had some pretty anti-voter rights laws in 2020 and, so and don't forget I my do home state of north carolina <laughs> Yeah, I was exactly right. I was, that was the next one I was going to mention. Um, and North Carolina really proved first and foremost the, the, the importance of Section 5 because it was practically the day after Shelby County that the North Carolina legislature began you know, to undo some rights that had been in place. So, yes. But I also think we have to acknowledge that the attack on voting rights, unfortunately, is happening in states that were not just covered jurisdiction, right? So, you know, my own state of Ohio has done some anti-voting rights legislation that is very problematic in my view, but could not have been affected by Section 5 because Ohio was never covered. Wisconsin has had some ugly um, voter laws in the last few years and Wisconsin was not a covered jurisdiction. And I, again, Iowa just this year, I mean, Iowa actually beat Georgia to, to the rollback this year in terms of changing the rules in the aftermath of 2020. And the, and the point that was made by Democrats in Iowa was, wait, Trump won Iowa. You know, what, you know, you know, what's the, what are you complaining about? What's the problem? And, and the, the, as I understand it, the legislature said, well, our, our voters are, are, are worried about fraud and they think the election was stolen. And so we need to be more restrictive. You know, I, the, you know, I think 
I mean, again, each state is different, and I'm not trying to equate Iowa and Georgia. And and but I but I do think if 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 we think about what is a good system, I do think we have to acknowledge that the problem that we're seeing around the country, you know, is not just in southern states. Unfortunately, it's a national phenomenon. Just for 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 our listeners, uh, talk about the Shelby County decision and why was. Uh, Specific to those uh, defined states, why was gutting Section 5 critical to the process? So you're right. Here's where the history that we were talking about before is really important. Because when Congress passed the 65 Voting Rights Act, it was focused on the South, you know, the, the former Confederate states that had engaged in Jim Crow and had systematically been, you know, oppressive. Um, civil rights generally, unfortunately, was separate but equal, but also the denial of the voting rights. And, and again, the history is, it's unimaginably horrific, but it's unfortunately true. I mean, the, the, it, it was terrorism. I mean, the Klan, I mean, you know this, but, but the, you know, the, the use of violence and intimidation to, prepare, to prevent people from going to vote was so widespread and so effective, it was coercive, right? I mean, you were you were in danger of losing your life or your house being burned down or any, you know, if you tried to vote. And um, and and so, but the Voting Rights Act said, we have got to live up to the promise of equality. And, and so the, the Congress adopted what was called strong medicine, which meant this concept of preclearance and non meaning that the states that were covered, the states that had been engaged in this terrific terrorism and discrimination, were told by Congress, you need permission from the federal government to make any changes in election law because we don't trust you. <laughs> we know the history and we know that you have used literacy text, tests and poll taxes and every manipulation imaginable to try to suppress the vote. So we can't let you adopt any voting rules until we review them and make sure they're okay and that they're not designed to be suppressive. And so that went to the Supreme Court very quickly after the law was adopted and this and the states, it was South Carolina, I believe, that brought the main case, but the Southern states were saying, we're sovereign states, we have states' rights. We don't need permission from the federal government to enact our election laws, that's our right. And if you wanna complain about our laws, you sue us after the fact, but we don't need to, it's not mother may I, we don't need your permission. And the Supreme Court said, no, this is special. The, the, the history is so bad and the necessity for this rule is so strong, we are going to impose this preclearance regime that we ordinarily, you know, wouldn't have in, in our system of government, but we need it. So, and originally this preclearance in section five was supposed to be temporary, but Congress kept reauthorizing it because of ongoing need for it. And, and on a bipartisan basis, the votes in Congress for a long time were overwhelmingly, yes, we wanna keep section five. And Congress for a while did update what was called the coverage formula 
which adjusted which jurisdictions needed this preclearance. And some of them were states, like South Carolina as a state. Some of them were localities. So it turned out it wasn't just the South anymore. You had um, parts of New York State, for example, were considered covered, and parts of Alaska, actually, I think were covered. But mostly it was still the South. But then Congress got a little lazy, to be honest, unfortunately. And um, you know, con- so when Congress reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 2006, it didn't update the coverage formula, and it, it just said, "Hey, you know, we like the law. We, you know, let's let's not rock the boat." Uh, and and the easiest, and you can understand how polit- politicians don't like to open up a can of worms if they don't have to. So they said, "Hey, it's working. Let's just keep it as is." And some conservatives sued and said, well, you know, this preclearance is still a burden on these states, and we think the states are doing better than they used to do. And so if you're going to make them get preclearance, you at least ought to update which states are covered and which states are not. So then the Supreme Court in the case called Namudno, this was before Shelby County, said, well, we're going to give Congress another chance to update the formula. We're not going to invalidate the formula now, but we are worried that if given the that preclearance is unusual and and it is a special burden on states, we would like Congress to take a, another look and update the formula. And the and in my judgment, the really sad thing is that Congress didn't bother to take that hint. It was a pretty strong hint. And so when Shelby County came along. It was a split decision, but the majority's attitude was, we told you, Congress, you needed to update the formula. You didn't do it. And we don't think you can keep the formula on autopilot. We think states are entitled to be you know, told on an updated basis whether they're bad actors or not bad actors. And if you're going to keep a state like North Carolina or South Carolina under preclearance, we want to know why you're not keeping Ohio or not adjusting it. Because if Ohio is just as much a violator of voting rights as North Carolina is, then both states should be subject to the same rules. And if you're not going to do that, Congress, at least tell us why. You know, and anyway, I mean, we can argue, you know, we can discuss. I mean, I I would have dissented if I had had the opportunity. I didn't like Shelby County. I still don't like Shelby County. But but I think honesty requires acknowledging that Congress is to blame in large part for Shelby County, because Congress had a chance to update the Congress, the coverage formula. And Congress still had, that's why the John Lewis bill is so important, because the John Lewis bill would at least update the coverage formula. And if we take the court, the Supreme Court, even the conservatives at their word, they would sustain a new coverage formula as long as Congress updates it. But this is, this is why I like... Uh... This is this is one of the reasons I'm 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 like having the the conversation with you because you're you're answering the question before I get to ask them. I was going to ask you about my next question was going to be about the importance of, of the John Lewis bill uh, in ter- in terms of, of of addressing Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. But I digress. In my view, Professor Foley, uh, reactionary legislation invariably comes with unintended consequences. But what we have in SB 202 seems more along the lines of illiberal legisla- legislation. And I call it that because there's no, there's no real identifiable problem that it's addressing beyond the outcome of last year's election. 
And and because it's because of that, it's inherently regressive and antithetical, you know, to the values of the republic. And I'd like your thoughts on that. Yes, I mean I I completely agree that it's unnecessary, and I also think it's pernicious. You know, so I think we don't want to mince words about that. Again, I'm just, you know, horrified by the no food and water. And I'm really worried, like you are, about the takeover of the of the election boards by the legislature. And there are other provisions that we could talk about. What I don't know is how consequential it's going to be. I mean, in other words, is the problem here. I mean, it's more than symbolic. I don't want to minimize it. But 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 the. You know, I, so, you know, we, I, I think we have to be concerned that it was motivated by a desire to be effective, meaning that, you know, it was adopted essentially by one party, the Republicans, over the objection of the other party, the Democrats in the state of Georgia. And you at least have to worry that the goal here is to make it easier for Republicans to win and harder for Democrats to win. And if it has that effect, it's, you know, antithetical to the values of a well-functioning democracy, in my judgment, small d democracy, because the system should allow the voters to have democratic candidates to win, as they did in the state of Georgia in this last election, right? I mean, Biden won the state of Georgia fair and square, despite what Trump said, and the Democrats won the two Senate races in in the runoffs. And, and and the will of voters should prevail in, in, in a fair election. And so if the point of this law is to make the process unfair so that Democrats can't win again, I surely hope the courts stop it and, 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 and that it can't have that consequence because that's taking away the fundamental right of the people to vote. But what I what I honestly don't know at the moment is whether it's going to be effective in that nefarious sense or whether or not it's possible despite you know what seems to be a very nefarious motive that nonetheless it will backfire i mean one thing that you know for it, it is possible that it will rightfully anger democrats in the state of georgia and that they will do a better job in 2022 of getting out the vote because People don't like their rights to be taken away from them. And um, even though, you know, it's hostile to voting rights, it may not be effective in negating voting rights. So it may still be possible to win despite this, you know, what seems like an effort to, 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 to stack the deck, if you will. You know, I, so I, I, I'm, I mean, it's a long-winded answer. I apologize, but I, I, I think... Again, there's a difference between the motive of the law versus the effect of the law. And, you know, and for all of the problematic parts of the law that we've talked about, it still does leave in place, you know, some, you know, there is, so for example, early voting is still an option in the state of Georgia. And as I understand it, localities within Georgia still can do Sunday early voting as well as Saturday early voting as well as during the week. So so what I don't know is whether or not there's going to be adequate opportunity to actually go and cast a ballot. I hope so. I you know that because you want people to have the right to vote. 
Um, and there is also going to be absentee voting. There's some new rules that apply, like an ID requirement, but it doesn't completely negate the right to vote, I guess is partly what I'm saying. It just makes it harder. Well, let me, let me just um, end on this. Uh, are we, in your view, heading toward a constitutional impasse where, the, where it's going to be put on the court uh, to uh, rather than Congress, that to, ha- to come up with a definitive baseline that all citizens can can have access to voting rights, or, or, or will we are we headed into the sort of wilderness, sort of a potpourri based on each state? Well, I think we need to look to both Congress and the courts. I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and situation. Um, I, I, I think it is essential for Congress to act right now. I, I do think there is something of a voting rights emergency going on with all of these laws in Georgia and Arizona, the ones we're talking about, or these attempted laws or bills that are pending. And, and that's why I think the John Lewis bill in Congress is so important, because it seems to me it is the quickest, easiest way, even though... Um, H.R. 1 was adopted by the House of Representatives first. I actually think it may be easier to get the John Lewis bill through the Senate. And and that would at least be effective in stopping the hemorrhaging, if you will. Right. To the extent that we have a voting rights crisis, I think the John Lewis bill is designed to meet the crisis and again to undo Shelby County by having an effective coverage formula. Then we can talk about going beyond that and saying, okay, let's let's look at HR1 and let's get a, a good uh, set of rules for congressional elections that, that Congress adopts. So I think I think it's a multi-pronged strategy. And I think we need both Congress and the courts to give us a national baseline. I mean there is always going to be some state by state variation, but it's essential to have both the Congress and the federal courts protect the national right to vote. Professor Ned Foley, constitutional law professor at Moritz College of Law at, at the Ohio State University. Thank you, sir, for joining me today on the Public Rally. I much appreciate your insight. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The Public Rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.